Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast, episode number four? Four. Episode four. I had to think about it for a minute. All right. Yeah. Uh, ben, what do we got on tap today? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the most interesting man in heathenry, and certainly one without whom there would be no heathen movement in the U.S., or certainly one that would be very different from the way it came to develop, and that is Steve McNally. And specifically in this episode, we're going to focus on kind of the early part. We're going to talk about the Viking Brotherhood, which was his original organization that then changed its name into the Ossetru Free Assembly. And I will stumble because he currently has an organization called the Ossetru Folk Assembly. I might stutter. I apologize. And then in a later episode, we'll have a look at the transition from the Ossetru Free Assembly to the Ossetru Folk Assembly. And fill you in on the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey would say. Mm -hmm. And now, the rest of the story. All right. uh Stevie was born on (laughs) August 15th, 1948, page two. In Breckenridge, Texas, uh, Mm. which is north of the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. Pretty small town. I think the population's been pretty steady at about 6,000 people. Right. I know his father was involved in uh, the oil industry in some way. I'm not really clear on exactly. Everyone is up there. It's yeah. just. Yeah. My family is from that general area. And even if you are an accountant or you're somehow tied to the oil industry out there. All right. I'm not exactly sure what uh, what Gerald McNallan, Stephen's father, did, but he was in oil and he was raised Catholic. In a uh, later uh, newspaper article that I have, he described himself as being very devout and actually went and tracked down some newspaper clippings about his early career, uh, looking, for example, in uh, the Breckenridge newspaper. Uh, He first shows up in 1957 uh, playing on a Little League team sponsored by the Elks Club and called the Sports, which was actually the name of a minor league team in Shreveport at the time. (laughs) <laughs> and then the next year, he played for the Jake Wells testing missions, which was named after the San Antonio minor league team. The missions, that makes sense. Yeah. So he played uh, Little League baseball for a couple of years, presumably had a fairly normal childhood for that time and place, the baby boom generation. And at some point, uh, exactly when I'm not sure on, uh, he grew disillusioned with the Catholic faith that he'd been raised in, uh, came to believe that the Christian God was essentially a tyrant and not worthy of the worship that he was getting. And we know that he was inspired by the novels of Robert E. Howard. Uh, Howard was, in fact, a Texan and had grown up in some kind of frontier towns in Texas in the 20s which was after the Wild West, but it still was not the sedate West. Uh, It's really still – I got family out mm -hmm. there. It's really still not. It's more of the moderately dangerous West. Right. Well, there's still, you know, the the ideal of the rough and rugged individual, what, don't take nothing from nobody and – the motto, don't mess with Texas. Let's be honest here. Mm -hmm. My mother is a Texan. I know this very intimately. You grew mm-hmm. up very close to Texas. So Texas, when they say Texas is like a whole other country, it, there really is a very mm-hmm. distinct culture in Texas you don't find right. elsewhere. And part of the mythos of Texas was Robert E. Howard, 
who wrote prolifically uh, stories of all kinds. And he's probably best known for his stories of Conan. Uh, he was the writer of uh, the stories of Conan, which were collected into larger volumes after his death and ultimately inspired uh, the movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger and all that. Yeah, that's all I see when you say Conan mm -hmm. is Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, because that is just kind of like so iconic. He also came across the novels of a man named Edison Marshall, and Edison Marshall is probably best known uh, for writing a novel called The Viking, uh, which is a uh, rather, I don't know if you can say it's a fictionalized account because the original account is already pretty darn fictionalized, but it's an account of the life of Ragnar Lothbrok. Ben, you know something about writing about the life of Ragnar Lothbrok? I've, I've heard of the guy. Yeah. And um, anyway, it was made a few years later into a movie called The Vikings, uh, which starred Ernest Borgnine and Kirk Douglas and took a few liberties with the original story. Oh, it and Janet Lee, Tony Curtis, and mm -hmm. narrated by Orson Welles. Right. Why have we not watched this? Well, I think we need to. This is, this is our next kindred movie night right here. Okay. Well, it's actually famous for a, a particular, uh, particular line. Uh, which I think I'm going to play for you. This is a brief clip from um, the movie The Vikings. This is Einar, my only son in wedlock. He's so vain of his beauty, won't let a man's beard hide it. He scrapes his face like an Englishman. Oh. Hail Ragnar. Hail Ragnar's beard. <laughs> yeah, Hail Ragnar, Hail Ragnar's beard uh, we owe to um, the movie The Vikings. He read some other Edison Marshall novels as well. There's one called Westward with the Vikings. I couldn't track down a copy, but uh, McNallan seems to have been very enamored with this romantic ideal of Vikings as being, you know, heroic, brave, and individualistic. I mean, sure, they might slaughter your women and rape your livestock or something like that. Uh, but there was an inherent uh, nobility about being a Viking. And this was the very much the picture of the Vikings that he had when he started a group called the Viking Brotherhood. Yeah, it's really, Edison Marshall has a book that I was actually one of kind of my pathways into this too, called The Pagan King, which is in fifth century England, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting that. You know, there's here we have yet another, you know, fiction author. But that was actually really common. These tales of the Norse mm -hmm. sagas, like these beautifully illustrated picture books of North mythology were incredibly popular mm -hmm. gifts that were given to young men in the 50s. I found uh, there's a lot doing kind of some research. There's a lot of heathen heathens of that generation who all credit these kind of books like this that came out at that time for piquing their initial interest in heathenry. And a lot of that goes back all the way into the 19th century, especially in England. There was this view of the Vikings as, um, you know, sure, they might have invaded a good chunk of England and killed a lot of people, but uh, their boldness, nobility, self-government democratic parliamentary rule with the Althing and things like that 
were thought to have introduced great noble character traits into the English character, and that ends up showing up in America as well in the 19th century, and we probably ought to do an episode about, oh, we about will. that. We will. I, I, and I kind of interesting, you know, when you think about the 19th century, if you go back to our very first episode, probably influenced A. Rudd Mills. Mm-hmm. And I have here, uh, he wrote an article in the journal Tear called Three Decades of the Ossetru Revival. Is that uh, in volume two? And that's in volume two. And uh, he writes, I decided to follow the gods of the Vikings in either 1968 or 1969. During my college years, this decision arose from two things. My perception that the god of the Bible was a tyrant and that his followers were willing slaves and an admiration for the heroism and vitality of the Norsemen as depicted in popular literature. This pagan epiphany did not spring from the leftist hippie Age of Aquarius counterculture of the 1960s. Quite the opposite. I was attracted to the Vikings by their warlike nature, their will to power, and their assertion of self. My own views bore no resemblance to peace, love, and good vibes. So none of that hippy-dippy stuff, even when he goes off to college— at Midwestern University in the bustling metropolis of Wichita Falls, Texas, which I also have family because Texas, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's Wichita Falls, not kind of a wide spot in the road with a small university. It's nothing really, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of like Conway. Yeah. Not, uh, probably not the best place to experience the 60s counterculture. I don't think the summer of love got all the way out to Wichita Falls. I'm just guessing here. But no, it was the summer of of working on the pipeline. I'm, if my dad is any okay. indication, the summer of pipelines. Yes. Got it. Okay. Uh, he majored in political science. He was an ROTC cadet with an eye towards a career in special forces. And bear in mind, this is in the Vietnam War era. I don't think he's written much about this, but I assume he was expecting that he might have to go into combat. I Although, think every young man in that era expected, mm-hmm. I, you know, from talking to my own family of that age, I think every single one of them expected mm-hmm. at some point they would be drafted and have to go into combat. Right. As it turned out, he would not see combat because we were out of uh, Vietnam by the time he was commissioned. But he also served, at least briefly, I found this out in uh, clippings in the Wichita Falls Times, uh, he was at least briefly acting head of his campus chapter of Young Americans for Freedom, which was this conservative slash libertarian student organization that I think was encouraged by William F. Buckley as this sort of conservative youth movement as a counter to the liberal student movements that were so prevalent at the time. And Young Americans for Freedom is still an active organization that still has chapters it kind of uh, died off a little bit in the 80s, but it's actually – they've unified with another group. But, yeah, they're, it's mm-hmm. still an active organization. I think the last I saw, they had like like 70 chapters. The other thing we know he did is I actually got a clipping from page 11A of the Wichita Falls Times, uh, the Sunday morning edition, March 31st, 1960. Eight, I think, in which uh, he founded a student group at Midwestern University uh, dedicated to UFO research. Title of the article is called Sympathy Do Saucer Ciders. And he's quoted as saying, 
vast amounts of circumstantial evidence, and possibly some concrete evidence too, indicate that the Earth is under surveillance from somewhere other than our own planet. To explain the thousands of sightings as hysteria, temperature inversion, or mistaken identification of the planet Venus is an absolute absurdity. Whatever is behind the flying saucer phenomenon must be investigated and revealed so that appropriate action can be taken. And I still remember kind of the tail end of this. In the late 60s and 70s, you do have kind of this upsurge in uh, fringe science. I mean, you have people like von Donneken, you know, claiming that aliens built the pyramids and everything else. Uh, you have interest in the Bermuda Triangle and interest in, certainly in UFOs, interest in ancient civilizations with strange powers that are now completely lost to modern human consciousness. Uh, there's all kinds of sort of alternative science overlapping a bit with the New Age to some extent uh, that's very much in the public consciousness of the time. Now, I will say that Having been somebody from Texas, there's a very strong mythos in Texas, especially around that era, about the Marfa Lights, mm -hmm. which are out, of course, other side of the state, West Texas. But they, you know, this is at this time, this would have been right before, you know, kind of the hundredth anniversary of the first mm -hmm. sighting of the Marfa Lights, which are, I don't want to get into the whole thing with that. Look it up if you're interested. But I think. That it's, you know, within that era, you've got all of the kind of pop paranormal science. And then I'll be honest, I went through a, a UFO unidentified light thing. I think everyone does. He just organized his. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He mentions that um, there was a sighting in Wichita Falls and another sighting in some place called Childress, Texas. And they were actually planning a trip to uh, Childress uh, to gather direct information. So... Gotcha. Yeah, he certainly has a talent for organizing groups to pursue these passions. Yeah, Childress will be right up there on the border of Oklahoma and Texas. Ah. Where there are casinos now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what, whatever the unidentified flying object was, it was probably going as fast as it could to get out of Oklahoma. Yeah, can't blame it. You know, I probably shouldn't say that. We might lose a subscriber or two. No, because they're our friends. It's okay. All right. all right. So, yeah, but I mean, that's not, I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting. And when you listen to our live episode, which we've already recorded, but will come out after this, or if you are subscribed to our Facebook, we actually have another video about people in that era of heathens also being really into uh, aliens. That uh, So go over to our Facebook and check that out because it's pretty funny. I'm yeah. not going to lie. I'm not saying it's aliens, but... It's Aryan aliens. Ah. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, towards the end of his college career, uh, he found a group called the Viking Brotherhood. Uh, they take out ads in Fate magazine. Uh, for the first couple of years, his worship of the Norse gods is entirely in private, and as far as he knows, he's the only person uh, trying to do this. Uh, but they go public, and he puts out the first issue of the Runestone in the spring of 1972. Um, I've got it on microfilm, and it's almost impossible to read. 
uh, because it was produced on this ancient eldritch technology known as a mimeograph machine. Yeah, you say that word and I can smell it. Well, the mimeograph is actually different from what I remember from oh. childhood, which is the spirit duplicator. Gotcha. That's the thing that smells so distinctive and produced mostly purple yes. copies. But apparently their spirit duplicator broke, so they had to use a mimeograph machine. Oh, wow. And uh, they had a print run of exactly 11 copies. So it, it still sold more than any book I've written. Yeah. You've written a book? No, but that's the point. Okay. Got it. <laughs> All right. Uh, probably sold more than about half the books I've written. That's neither here nor there. Uh, so the first issue has this uh, beautiful hand-drawn portrait of um, Odin on the cover uh, that you can hardly see, I'm afraid. And one feature of a lot of these early issues of the Runestone is similar to Elsa Christensen. There's not much in there about how one might actually worship the Viking gods Simply because, you know, there really aren't any models uh, that McNallan would have had in his environment. He's sort of trying to start from scratch with scattered academic sources and Edison Marshall's novels is probably his primary inspiration. And as someone who came out of Christianity, I imagine even if he had come across Rudd Mills's work, which was basically the Anglican church with the names mm -hmm. filed off he probably would have rejected that pretty quick because it is mm -hmm. very i would say he would probably find it way too close to catholicism right but he didn't find out about rudd mills yeah. until later he's basically trying to do all the heavy lifting himself and he is very highly focused in these early issues on individualism versus collectivism i don't know how much ayn rand he'd been reading but it sounds like he might have read quite a bit of Atlas Shrugged at one point. And, well, I'm going to say because he was um, the head of a libertarian group in college, I'm going to say that the, he probably had to read Ayn Rand. Right. So he writes in the very first issue, there is an age-old struggle being fought today, and I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time reading it, it because it really is hard to read. It is. It is. I'm, I'm going to defend Ben on this one. I have the mm – -hmm. yeah, it's, uh, it is very I've got hard it. to read. There is an age-old struggle being fought – sorry, an eon-old struggle being fought today, and the tempo of the battle seems to be accelerating and speeding towards some crucial point. The struggle is not between something as ill-defined as good and evil, darkness and light – these terms are ambiguous and mean different things to different men. Rather, the battle is locked between the individual and the collective. Unfortunately, the latter has been gaining ground during recent history and has reached a point where the defeat, total and final, of the forces of individualism is not inconceivable. And there's passages like that all the way through early issues of the Runestone, uh, where the Vikings are invoked as symbols of freedom and individuality against the forces of conformity and collectivism. That's not necessarily the most accurate view of the Vikings, if only because you can't be a bunch of rugged individualists if you're going to sail a sailing ship. You know, it really does require everybody to pull together for the collective good or else you end up, you know, going to Rom the, the sea giantess. And, and I think that that's interesting because you 
that's a a divide that you're seeing even in modern heathenry is more of us more research comes out more people tend to embrace the more i see christianity as more of an individualistic religion you know it's all about your relationship with jesus that might not have been true in McNally's right. upbringing. That's definitely – and that's something that definitely got put mm-hmm. forth in the 80s and the evangelical yeah. push. Yeah. But you, you get that coming out of evangelicalism, the right. insistence on a personal relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. But – and now you have – there's definitely a divide, I think, within – especially people now who identifies osagery versus people who identifies various flavors of heathen. With that individualism versus the uh, more community mm-hmm. focused. Right. One thing I want to read into the record is in the very first issue, he briefly talked about he praised the exploits of the Vikings in killing the Irish and then added a little disclaimer trying to avoid offending any actual Irish people who not, might not be rooting for the Vikings And as he writes, we are merely extolling the feats of our spiritual ancestors. We mean no ill feeling to either of these noble peoples. On the contrary, some of the staunchest supporters of paganism are to be found in that part of the world. I think he means Ireland. Being a Viking is not a matter of race or nationality. It is a matter of the mind and the heart. Yes, Steve McNallan said that. 1972. Mm-hmm. Things would kind of change. They would. And um, the also had a Viking manifesto as part of the organization, mm-hmm. which is the Viking Brotherhood is an organization dedicated to preserving, promoting and practicing the Norse religion as it was epitomized during the Viking Age and deferring the moral and ethical values of courage, individualism and independence, which characterize the Viking way of life. Be a Viking, you can sail the seven seas. Be a Viking, plunder monks and take their things. Be a Viking, Um, oh, you can marry pretty things. Be Be a Viking, be a Viking. (laughs) So, yeah, there is an article that was published in 1996 by uh, Jeffrey Kaplan called The Reconstruction of the Ossetry and Odinus Traditions, which, from his perspective on what a, these things are, is pretty out of date, um, since it was, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I hate thinking it's been that long, since 1996. But one of the things that he points out, looking at kind of the early history of the Viking Brotherhood, is very much that, from the very beginning, the organization was pressured from both within and without to promote a, to quote, I'm quoting here, racialist or frankly national socialist agenda. Um, and well, th- it wasn't quite that in the very beginning, yeah. probably because there weren't enough people. <laughs> it's hard in to, it. Yeah, 11 yeah. people. Yeah. In uh, the very third runestone ever put out, volume one, number three, that I have here before me. Someone actually wrote a letter in asking about a Wiccan, wrote a letter asking, hey, who are you guys and what the heck are you doing? And, you know, how do you feel about this, that and the other? And is it okay if Celtic people come and join you given the Viking appetite for killing Celtic people and taking their stuff? They had good stuff. Yeah, they did. They did. 
And uh, McNallan writes back, I want to clear up this Celt-Norse thing. I have more Celt in me than Norse myself. Following the Norse religion is wholly apart from race or national origin. Yes, Uh McNallan said that. Spread it around. There's a meme going around Facebook with a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Spread widely. Yeah, yeah. He probably he probably does not want to be reminded of that. It'd be the equivalent of showing him a you well, know a goofy fourth grade school photo or something. But probably share it then on Twitter because McNallan's banned from Facebook. Ah, uh, yeah. Too bad. But uh, that was in the third ever issue of the Runestone. In the fourth ever issue of the Runestone, he mentions that he's made contact uh, with this other group that's also worshiping the Norse gods. Uh, that would be the Odinist Fellowship, uh, Elsa Christensen's group, which at the time is still based out of Toronto, Canada. She had not moved to uh, Florida yet. And it's roughly about that time that you can start tracing an evolution of McNallan's thought from being pretty much you know, libertarian and freedom-loving to getting increasingly, I guess, ethnicist is uh, is the word, and increasingly concerned with social decay and the need for good and decent people of European descent to wake up and start taking action against the forces of collectivism and you know white guilt and things like that that are ruining this country. That's about the time he starts taking a turn for the conservative. Well, more conservative. Mm-hmm. Right, the more conservative. He's it, never been what you'd call a hippie. And the thing is, like, looking at this kind of formative era here, you see a lot of echoes, because I did a lot of reading. One of the things that really interested me is how does someone go from this view to the current perspective he puts out, which, quite frankly, is white supremacist how does somebody how does that evolution happen so i was reading about that era and the new left and the new right as they called them back then and a lot of what you see in the new right the kind of response to the hippies and summer of love is and diversity in the civil rights act is very similar to what we see now in the alt-right. It's very cyclical. We're seeing the same things happen over and over again, which gives me some hope in some ways. Well, I think a a lot of the ideas that you're getting in the alt-right now have been around since the 60s. It's just up until the explosion of the internet and social media, uh, the average person wasn't exposed to them unless he or she went looking for them. I mean, you had to choose to join the John Birch Society or Young Americans for Freedom or something like that uh, to be exposed to this kind of thing. But I can't remember which it is, but one of the old runestones, I think, actually makes a reference to cultural Marxism. So that is one meme that was floating around in this kind of isolated sphere uh, for some time before it stormed its way onto Facebook. So there was definitely some influence mm-hmm. there when it comes to after that exposure to uh, Elsa Christians. Right. But there's also Jefferson Calico uh, wrote this really good book called um, Being Viking about the growth of American Ossetru. And I'll recommend it to everyone. He's a great guy and he writes well. And he points out that right as the Viking Brotherhood is forming, 
the big background in U.S. society is this is the time of liberation movements for a lot of groups that had been kind of stuffed in a shoebox and placed on a shelf in the 50s are starting to come out and say, you know, no, we want to take a bigger role in society. We want to exercise our full rights. So this is the time when you have women's lib, first wave feminism. Uh, you have Cesar Chavez leading uh, labor actions with the uh, Chicano movement and uh, the movement for, uh, you know, Mexican migrant workers. The Black Panther movement is uh, at its height in places like Oakland. The American Indian movement, this is the time frame in which they're doing things like occupying Al Alcatraz and uh, occupying Wounded Knee. This is the time of activists like uh, Russell Means. Um, uh, let's not forget the Stonewall Riots. And let's not forget the Stonewall Riots, because we just passed the 50th anniversary of those. Uh, this is the time when gay liberation, as they would have called it, is starting to make its first big-time waves. And I tracked down the Time Magazine cover story for June 19th, 1972. Oh, is this is this a, the occult, a substitute faith? Yeah, the cover story was the occult. A substitute faith. And it's interesting. It talked about, I mean, it leads off with an interview with Anton LaVey and Satanism, but there's also coverage of groups like Adon Kelly's Wicca-ish group called the New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, N-R-O-O-G-D, and various other um pagan and new age movements as they looked in the 70s. They're finally big enough uh, that they're starting to draw attention in a, a national magazine, one of the most widely read at the time. And that is right as the first issues of the Runestone are coming out. So you can see a lot of what came of the Viking Brotherhood as shaped by this, influenced by this, and also reacting to this. For one thing, the Viking Brotherhood, from the very first issue of the Runestone, was very much about ecological awareness, the need to care for Earth that give us to all, with suggestions for how people could get involved in environmental causes at the time. This is also the height of Llewellyn's publishing, when they, the real first, if for those of you not familiar, Llewellyn is kind of the top tier New Age pagan publisher. Mm -hmm. Uh, opinions on their quality vary, but we'll just go here. But that was pretty much when they really started focusing on new age stuff, especially mm -hmm. they were publishing Crowley and Dion Fortune. And that mm -hmm. was really kind of the, the uh, Gnostic Aquarian festivals. That was such a huge boom. And also 1970 was the Raymond Buckland's first book I published in Llewellyn, which for those of you are often unfamiliar with Wicca, Buckland is kind of one, one of the big name authors in Wicca, kind of one of the first. Right. And groups are starting to spring up. The Runestone exchanged ads with uh, pagan publications at the time. So the early issues contain contact information for groups like uh, the Church of All Worlds, uh, which put out a uh, pan-pagan newsletter called Green Egg. Which is still in publication. Mm -hmm. They mention a uh, there's a periodical called The Crystal Well. There's another one called The Silver Ankh. And, you know, in these 
days when everything's being done by newsletter, it seems to have been very common to just exchange ads. You know, we'll mm-hmm. put your contact information in ours and you put our contact information in yours. And something that I kind of want to backtrack a little bit to the first uh, first few issues of the Runestone is the fact that Steve McNallan actually produced the first, I forget which, when it started, but he actually produced a lot of these while he was in the military on active duty serving, even at one point overseas. Right. Right after he started putting out the runestone, he graduated from Midwestern University and would have gone into officer training. From there, he went to um, training in uh, upstate New York, and he ended up becoming an airborne ranger. So he did become special forces and oh. learned the skill of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. I want to be an airborne ranger. I want to live a life of danger. I've heard other songs about rangers, but I'm not – I don't feel like it's my place to sing them. So, so I just want to say that if you ever meet Steve McAllen and he does say he was an air, he was a special forces, he may be one of the few pagans you meet who really was. Because I've met a lot of uh, faux, faux yeah. special forces guys, but – Yeah, we had a local pagan leader in our town who said he was a Navy SEAL. Um, Bless his heart. He, yeah, bless his heart. That's the best we can say. So he, and also when he was writing it originally for the Runestone, he did write under the pen name Svein Geraldson. Yeah, Svein Geraldson. So I don't know if he still remembers that, but maybe we should call him that and see what happens. Um, he also had a, an interesting focus on the Vikings and other Europeans, Europeans coming to America. Uh, in early times, focused on things like the Hevener Runestone, which we know now is basically someone's graffiti from about mm-hmm. 150 years ago. Right. But f- I mean, even in one of the earliest issues, he talks about this news report he's heard of a Viking ship discovered in the Bering Strait. Um, allegedly, someone found a Viking ship preserved in the Imperial Valley of California. Uh, unfortunately, it was all destroyed in an earthquake in the 30s, so you can't examine it anymore. But, you know, we know. Uh, there's various little news items about rune inscriptions and Viking artifacts found all over the United States. Yeah, there's two of them here in Arkansas that don't get the same a lot. But there's one in Paragould and one in Russellville that are supposedly runic inscriptions, which are actually, like, not when you look at them. But mm-hmm. there, there seems to have been in the... The 20s and 30s, this real kind of huge rash of, look at these ancient runes mm-hmm. that I found. And then in the 70s, um, a uh, scientist, a specialist in sea urchins by the name of Dr. Barry Fell, uh, developed another interest and wrote some popular books about all of these rune and ogham inscriptions that he'd found uh, basically in early America, basically it was just Vikings practically, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, uh, with Celts, uh, carving their names on every rock you can, you could find. Vikings, the original graffiti artists. Right. And that still persists today because I mean, you, I have people mm-hmm. that will argue with me till the cows come home. The, the Hevener Runestone, which is in Oklahoma, was carved by Vikings who sailed up the Arkansas River. Which just makes my head hurt to think about. Why they would do that, I'm not entirely yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the point. But, like, you why? Know, whatever. But, um, yeah, this was, and this would actually play into 
uh, later developments that we'll talk about in the next episode uh, having to do with a uh, skeleton called Kennewick Man, but we'll get to that uh, later. So they get their tax-exempt status in 1973-ish, mm-hmm. and they start having local groups called Skepslags. Yeah, they start founding local groups called Skepslogs, which is Old Norse for a ship's crew. I'm not sure how many Skepslogs they ever actually had. Kind of different from modern-day kindreds. Uh, Skepslogs, every Skepslog was supposed to plant at least one tree a year because McNallan has been very consistent in his support for ecology and protecting and restoring the environment. That's been a common theme from the beginning. Ecology and uh, environmentalism was actually a conservative cause mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s when you had the first Earth Day and all that. That was actually considered a conservative liberal. It was a very nonpartisan topic. It was so, yeah. Well, the times they are changing. Yeah. And anyway... And Skepslogs were also supposed to have a physical conditioning program for all of their members. So it's like Heathen CrossFit. Something like that. Uh, should we call that Hammer Fit? Hammer Fit. Okay. Yeah, yeah we can call that Hammer Fit. Uh, if anyone would like to start that, credit us, pay mm-hmm. us some royalty. Yeah, yeah. Royalties are good. And I mentioned earlier that uh, he had a liking for uh, the Conan novels. Again, in the runestone, you don't see much of a ritual or worship-based focus uh, for the Viking religion. Uh, that doesn't really come until McNallan uh, leaves his commission and comes back to America. But he published a prayer in Volume 2, Number 2 of the runestone, which goes, All Father Odin. Watch me as I carry on the fight, but do not aid me or grant strength to my arm, nor speed to my wound maker, for the fight must be mine. I do not bend my knee to you as the Christians do to their God, but I cry out in joy to you as a battle friend. If you hear me, salute me when I fall in the fray, and have your Valkys bear me to Valhalla and prepare for me a mead horn. The spirit of your mighty sons must be kept alive, that man might be free, and it is for this that I fight. And I mention that because I came across a uh, passage from a Conan story called The Tower of the Elephant uh, that describes Conan's god, Krom. If you remember, he's always going, by Krom, to underscore any point that he makes. Yes. And uh, Krom is actually not that pleasant a god. Robert Howard writes, His gods were simple and understandable. Krom was their chief, and he lived on a great mountain whence he sent forth dooms and death. It was useless to call on Krom because he was a gloomy, savage god, and he hated weaklings. But he gave a man courage at birth and the will and might to kill his enemies— which in the Chimerian's mind was all any god should be expected to do. So from what I can tell, there's a very definite feel of Krom uh, to McNallan's concept of Odin at the time. Um, in uh, the third issue, he, he admits that they don't really have the infrastructure to be able to uh, hold uh, rituals at the time 
uh, mostly because they're just too few of them and they're too scattered. And that that's, uh, once again, it's something we hear today. There's We are, although the growth of heathenry in the 15 years I've been heathen has been unreal. Right. But it's still hard for a lot of people to find. Especially to find groups that share your values. Yeah. To find, it's hard to find individuals or groups that share your values and, you know, aren't batshit. Yeah. I mean, we've probably got within two hours of us, there's probably five kindreds. And I think we're the only one that's not just completely racist. So mm-hmm. that that gives you an idea. Right. That's also Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So and issue three. Yeah. It's still very much a warrior religion at the start. Uh, McNallan also writes, quote, though women have a definite place with us, ours is basically a warrior religion, one based on self-assertion, courage, and other attributes generally considered masculine. As a result, our female goddesses, that's sort of redundant, sorry about that, are de-emphasized. We do consider them important for balance and certainly add color to the bleak Northland. Practically speaking, we are more directly concerned with the Valkyries than with the goddesses. So the early Viking Brotherhood was not just small and scattered. It was evidently a sausage fest. And not just, oh man, that that just hurts me mm-hmm. to read. Now, one thing he did also say, there's a pretty interesting in the volume three episode issue one of the runestone. There's a pretty epic takedown of Hitler. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to. I'm going to kind of read the last sentence here. There can be no mistake, despite Hitlerian, I hope that's Hitlerian rhetoric about Germanic values and the pseudo-pagan aspects of some portions of the movement, true Norse ideals are not to be found in any way in fascism. Right. I just want to say that again for the people in the back. True Norse ideals are not to be found in any way in fascism. Right. He was denouncing the Nazis because they're the ultimate collectivists. You know, no self-respecting Viking is going to march in goose step with anybody else. And that that amuses me greatly. You know, and honestly, reading through these early issues of the Runestone, why I don't necessarily agree with everything, there's actually some interesting write-ups about historical places. There's some really good, and I don't know if he did the drawings himself or who did the drawings, but there's drawings of churches and mm-hmm. other artifacts that, you know, I mean, he... These definitely, especially, you know, thinking about what we have now and what, you know, because I used to work in a newspaper that was still a cut and paste operation, literally. Right. Cut it out and paste it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that goes into doing something like this. When he was, uh, it may have been during his deployment uh, in Europe, because after graduating, you know, officer training and qualifying as an airborne ranger, uh, he did serve for a time in Germany. And it may have been then uh, that he made a trip to Denmark, bought a ridiculously large number of books at uh, the National Museum, and got permission to use some of their drawings and photos. So runestone issues from about the mid-1970s are actually pretty well illustrated. Um, I've got one here that's got an aerial photo of a Viking ring fortress at a place called Firkat. Uh, so it is very well illustrated, although, of course, the photocopy process means it looks like it was photographed through a bowl of whipped cream. <laughs> so while mm-hmm. speaking of Germany, right. while he was in Germany, he kept the runestone going. He also got married to his first wife, Linda, 
He served as his own Gothi because John Yule, if you remember him from our Elsa Christensen episode, right. was the- invited to perform the service but couldn't actually show up. Yeah, Yule was uh, the leader of what was still at the time, I think, called the Committee for the Restoration of the Odinic Rite. And it yes. would become just the Odinic Rite. And had two kids, uh, a son, Eric Ragnar McNallan, Brandon Neal McNallan. And then he resigned his commission in the spring of 1976 over the futility of military service when the real crisis was elsewhere. Yeah, he's starting to get really paranoid at this stage about cultural decline. And in fact, in volume four, number one, he writes, We are tottering on the edge of catastrophe on the very brink of disaster, and so very few people give a damn. The gay revolution has become more or less accepted. The family as a viable unit has been crippled. Drug usage has become an integral part of our society. Bureaucracy grows. Freedom shrinks. The domains of our culture are whittled away, and our enemies stand on the ancient breeding grounds of our peoples. On every front, we're taking a licking. That that oddly sounds like something my Southern Baptist preacher would have said growing up. Right. He goes on, damn it, unless something is done, we as a culture have had it. Nature doesn't forgive losers. She allows their enemies to kill them. If we are to survive, we must fight tooth and nail without hesitations or half measures. Thinking about it won't help. Talking about it does little. I, for one, am sick and tired of the weakness and indecision which has so far characterized our efforts. What have you done for your beliefs lately? Bless his heart. Boy, the way the Vikings played. Loot and pillage, steal and raid. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you know who you were. All right. All right I, yeah. I got it. I got the high notes. You did. You did. Mm-hmm. Um, so after his service in Germany and this paranoia about cultural decline, I can't make this up. He returns to the U.S. and moves to Berkeley, California, because if I'm a conservative Texan who's really concerned about the decline in the morality of America, the first place I think to move is Berkeley. Yeah, the, the culture shock must have been rather intense. I'm not really sure why he picked uh, Berkeley, uh, but pick it he did and moved into an apartment on uh, Channing Way. Full disclosure, I went to Berkeley for grad school in the 90s. I didn't go through his neighborhood all that much, but I know about where it was. And he kept the runestone going and started making contact with more and more interested people. And on March 20th, 1977, he held the first public ritual to Odin in the United States in Cadornesis Park in Berkeley. And fairly soon after, actually commissioned two new Gothar to serve in Los Angeles and San Diego, in addition to his group centered in the Bay Area at the time. And then he starts uh, producing leaflets and booklets and starts putting actual ritual scripts in the Roostone in 77. Right. They're starting to get an actual ritual and devotional standards going. It's not quite so much about... Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of testosterone, which is kind of how it comes across in earlier issues. And that's a high influence on where we are now, 
because really kind of the the very first inklings of bloat and symbol come from this. Right. I mean, the, the ritual format that we still use today are derived from what McNallan produced in the uh, runestone back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So fall of 77, they changed the name of the organization from the Viking Brotherhood to the Ossetrue Free Assembly. Mm-hmm. Ossetrue Free. Different organization than the current AFA. Mm-hmm. And they start running ads in Soldier of Fortune magazine, which just, I don't right. even know what to say about that. Right. Well, they, they're still running ads in the pagan press, but right. uh, clearly they're looking for a uh, new clientele. I have an actual copy in my hands of um, issue 20. You want to show it to him? Of the runestone. Yeah, I'm holding it up to the mic so you can see. Yay. Oh, wait, it doesn't work that way, does it? No. Okay, well, I'm very gently riffling the pages into the mic. Uh, gently because it's kind of an old, old copy. But as he puts it, We've been feeling uncomfortable with the name Viking Brotherhood for quite some time now. Not so much because of the name itself, but because of the connotation it presents to many people. The religious character of the organization was not especially evident in the name, and to some it sounded like a fraternal organization or a tongue-in-cheek group whose sincerity was in doubt. The Norse people called their religion Asatru, and we have incorporated that term into our new name. Hey, Ben? Yes? You know what the Norse people called their religion? Not Asatru. Well, that yeah. was a phrase mm-hmm. that was not coined until I think the 18th century. Yeah, in the or the 19th century. In the sagas, when anybody yeah. refers to the old religion, it's just called Fornsither, old custom mm-hmm. or old way, more or less. But at about this time, there was a group in Arizona called uh, the Arizona Kindred. I don't know if they were called that at the time. They were called the Asatruar Folk. Uh-huh. Led by a guy who I think at first was Eric Thorarinson, later Thorstein Thorarinson. And he seems to have been in touch with the Ausatruar Fjellagith in uh, Iceland. Right. And actually brought in a lot of Norse names. This is exactly the time when the Runestone early issues had the name in runes. And the earliest issues, it's written Der Runstein. And this is about the time when it changes to the more accurate Norse form, Runsteinin. And the quality on the cover has gone up a lot. It's actually, you can tell it's a, it doesn't look like it's been done in whipped cream. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can actually, it looks like it's very seventies. You have a kind of a contradiction of one guy in garb and one guy wearing a leisure suit. And yeah, that, that's actually the ordination of those first two Gothar. Gotcha. I couldn't tell the other person because it was so dark. But one of the things that it does have contacts in here in California, New Jersey, Bellingham, Washington, and Iowa, which I find, um, I find kind of interesting. And so like the dichotomy between the whipped cream issue versus this really mm-hmm. pretty not work Mjolnir issue. I mean, that they came a long way in their publishing in a fairly short amount of time. Right. We mentioned in uh, the live episode, Diana Paxson mentioned that her brother-in-law, uh, Paul Zimmer, used to attend their meetings in Berkeley. Both at this time and then afterwards, McNallan moved to a town in the Central Valley called Turlock about which the less said the better, but continued to commute in and held meetings. And they were apparently 
meetings that everybody attended because as far as Norse religion went, they were the only game in town. And next episode, we'll have our first part of our live episode where Diana Paxton will actually talk about her experience mm-hmm. going to some of the these events and the after parties. And oddly enough, aliens will come back again. Indeed. And um, she reminisced about uh, Paul Zimmer used to enjoy the meetings very much watching the old Norwegians square off against the neo-Nazis because they still had a persistent plague of neo-Nazi-influenced people in the group. So he moves to Turlock, then moves to near Modesto in 80, then to Grass Valley in 83, and then he moves back to Breckenridge, Texas in 1985, which is where he was born Mm -hmm. and raised. Right. Working in the family oil business, I believe, is what he was doing. And in 85, there is an article that was actually originally done. So the copy that we have is from the Galveston Daily News, but it looks like it was originally in the Abilene Reporter News. Right. This is dated uh, November 16th, 1985. By this time, uh, McNallan has divorced his first wife, Linda. And uh, married his second wife, Maddie Hutter. And married his second wife, Maddie Hutter. Linda apparently still lives in Turlock. I'm not entirely sure how to approach her, but it might be interesting to try to have her on the show just to get her reminiscences of what the early, early days of the AFA were like. And I love this, that the the opening line of this, in the den of the Breckenridge home of Stephen McNallan and Maddie Hutter is a stack of bumper stickers imprinted with the message, God rides an eight-legged horse. Right. That's kind of awesome. I'm not going to lie. I, I kind of dig that. At this time, McNallan would have been in his mid-30s. And here, it, where it actually talks about, he earns his living by working in the family oil business. And his second wife was actually a native of England. Right. She had moved to California with her first husband. And at a, somewhere, she starts showing up in the masthead of the runestone as, I think, an assistant editor or something like that. And I don't know the full story as to how Steve came to divorce Linda and marry Maddie, but that had happened uh, by 1985. And interesting numbers that come from this, and granted, these are probably numbers they got from uh, McNallan, say that at the time there were about a 1,000 Odinists in the U.S. and about 40 in Texas at that particular time mm-hmm. in 1985. Well, a guy named Stephen Flowers, otherwise known as Edward Thorson, actually published an academic article on uh, uh, the rebirth of Germanic spirituality in an academic journal called the Mankind Quarterly. The Mankind Quarterly doesn't have that great a reputation in scientific circles because it's widely felt to be a, you know, academic white supremacist journal. But hey, he puts it on his CV and that's the important thing. Uh, It's called Revival of Germanic Religion in Contemporary Anglo-American Culture. Uh, came out in the spring of 81. And according to that, at that time, the AFA had about 500 members. Now, I want to go back just a little bit. They did have their first all thing in 1980. That's right. And that was after promising five years earlier they would have one. But Mm -hmm. I'll give him credit. He had to move back to the U.S. and moving overseas is a pain. But they did actually have... Their very first all thing in 1980. One of the guests was Stephen Flowers, otherwise yes. known as Edward Thorson, who gave a couple of workshops on runes. Another guest was a fellow by the name of Paul Seymour from England, 
who was involved with a reenactment group called the Norse Film and Pageant Society, which could supply extras for TV and movie productions, put on reenactment events, you know, visit kids in the schools for exciting history lessons. And also they sold and rented uh, props to theatrical and movie and TV companies that were doing period dramas. And Seymour seems to have been an early Odinist. I've encountered the claim that there was a group within the Norse Film and Pageant Society called the Odin Guard that actually did worship the Norse gods. And Seymour also brought with him a lot of jewelry and things like that to sell. You know, remember these days you can go on Amazon and get a, you know, 15 different Thor's hammers. Uh, That was not possible at the time. All of them the size of your fist and size for men, I just want to put out there. Okay, fair enough. But um, back in the day, you couldn't get things like that. And Seymour was one of the few suppliers of ritual uh, gear. And uh, also at this time is when the AA Free A starts establishing their guilds. They had a Warrior's Guild, a Veneer Guild, a Brewer's Guild, a you-name-it guild. They had an Aerospace Technology Guild at one point, which, you know, I, I kind of liked the idea because they saw the exploration of space as being a continuation of the exploring spirit of the Vikings. So what you're saying is that we need to start the the uh, Mars exploratory ships where they put out should be called longships? I don't know if the Vikings would have wanted to explore Mars because there isn't any gold on it, as far as I know. There's no women. Yeah. So there's no mead. So what's the point? Uh, to plant their flag. I guess so. Plant the raven banner. Yes. There we go. Plant so, the raven banner on um, Mars. So apparently at this in this same time, while he's still in San Francisco, there was a group called the Odinist Society that was a genuine neo-Nazi group. Yeah. They were known as the National Socialist White Workers Party, but they had been renting uh, space in San Francisco under false pretenses, under the name Odinist Society. And there was definitely uh, – there was a statement in issue 25 that was, you know, pretty sympathetic. You know, we realize and sympathize with the legitimate frustration of white men who are concerned for their kind and their culture. These concerns are fully justified. It is a tragedy that these men are driven to the radical groups such as the NSWWP simply because there is no well-known or responsible organization working for white ethnic awareness and identity. Mm-hmm. And there is where he starts walking the tightrope of saying, we're not racist, but, you know, like going through this fear of white identities under attack, but we're not going to, you know, we're not mm-hmm. racist. Really, we're not racist, but just sums it up perfectly. Right. Yeah, he was, I mean, having actual Nazis in your group is still, you know, kind of a PR black eye. And he'd always denounce the Nazis as being a bunch of, you know, mindless collectivists. And he writes here in this issue, we resent the use of our religion as a cover for meetings of totalitarian political groups. And we consider this act on the part of the Nazis to be an insult to the name of Odin as well as an act which could do great discredit to our faith. So, and this is a constant thing. Uh, 
apparently he actually had to ban people showing up at meetings in Nazi uniforms. Well, you know, it talks about in uh, issue 39, there's a letter to the editor that claims half the attendees at Yule 1981 were Nazis or KKK. McNallan goes, oh, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. No. And then runs well, an Mc- ad for the Turner Diaries. Yeah. McNallan says, you know, heavens no, I think there were only two or three actual Nazis <laughs> or KKK at the meeting. That's, you know, practically oh, none. man. Um, but yeah, you have on the one hand, he's opposed to the Nazis. On the other hand, a lot of his writing at the time is spreading the fear that white people of European descent are losing their culture and are under attack by things like affirmative action and gay rights and immigration that would become big in the nineties. And I keep thinking, In an earlier episode, we talked about Elsa Christensen and how she devoted almost an entire issue of The Odinist back in the early days uh, to praising Star Wars Mm -hmm. for transmitting Aryan myth. So I would only point out that it is evidently authentic Aryan wisdom to say, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hatred. Hatred leads to suffering. Fear is the path to the dark side. And yeah, yeah there is this constant, we're not Nazis, we're but. not racist, but you need to be afraid because white people are under siege. And there's, it's like balancing a pencil on its, its tip. You just cannot maintain that equilibrium for any length of time. And you're right, in issue 39, he was disavowing any sympathy with the Nazis and running an ad for a book called The Turner Diaries. Which The Turner Diaries is basically about a racial war, a racist civil war, for mm. lack of a better way to describe it. It's, it is the book that has influenced people such as Timothy McVeigh. And it was one of his favorite books. And it depicts this race war where, oh, one particularly fun scene, the protagonist is walking through L.A., and every woman who has dated a man of another race is hanging from a lamppost with a placard saying, I defiled my race. And then he walks down farther and the entire UCLA faculty is hanging from lampposts with signs saying, I betrayed my race and so on. The Turner Diaries is not nice people. I, I've i actually not read it because I like my sanity. Right, right. You really – you you – it yeah, turn not, it- it's it's masturbation material for a certain class of people obsessed with with race. So we were talking earlier about the guilds. There are actually more were established in the early eighties, including the Committee on Odinist Social Concerns. Mm-hmm. It was proposed to tackle, and I quote, the lack of ethnic identity among people of Northern European descent and the evils of which spring from this lack of basic tribalism, the loss of our culture, the defamation of our history, and reverse discrimination called affirmative action by the bureaucrats. We believe that Ossetru is an expression of the soul of our people and that the future of our ancestral faith is intimately connected with the future of our people as a cultural and biological group. And that's from the Rinstone 31. I've actually got a copy of it here with the uh, bright green cover with Ostara on the front. Uh, It's still... It is it is like 80s lime green. Mm-hmm. And it's still eight and a half by 11 stapled, although soon after this, they'd go to a fold. 
right. pattern. But I've got it right here, and I'm holding up to the mic so that everybody can see this. And it's a, it's a, wow, that's really green. Mm-hmm. And riffling through the pages very gently. Yes. You know, that was McNallan's attempt to come up with a political wing and work on things like, oh, they were work trying to work for a while on schooling and, you know, getting rid of liberal brainwashing in the school curriculum. That's one of the things the committee mentioned. Which uh, was something Elsa Christensen had actually talked about in her on in the Odinist as well. So 1980, Runestone 34, pages four through six, is the probably I would say one of the most published articles that Steve McNallan has put out, period. It's now on the internet. And Ben, as a biologist, mm-hmm. I know that you are very, you know, you you have interest in this, and that is his article on metagenetics Metagenetics. Mm -hmm. i've got it here he published it in 80 it came out in a uh, booklet that the afa sold of uh, selected articles from the runestone in 82 Uh, it was republished on the internet Uh, you can currently get it in a booklet put out by the new afa the a folk a called The Philosophy of Metagenetics, Folkism, and Beyond. So, Ben, what is metagenetics? Well, it goes like this. One of the most controversial tenets of Asatru is our insistence that ancestry matters, that there are spiritual and metaphysical implications to heredity, and that we are thus a religion not for all of humanity, but rather one that calls only its own. That's how he begins the article, and it basically argues that there is a natural religion that is somehow encoded in your very DNA, in your genetic makeup. Following any other religion is unnatural and ultimately unsatisfactory and only likely to lead to misery. Now, this... This idea of a folk soul or metagenetics was not originally his, as we talked about in the Elsa Christensen episode. This was something that Elsa Christensen had put forth, mm-hmm. and to some degree, A-Rod Mills even put out. It forth. goes back farther than that. It goes back to late 19th century Germany, uh, where you have this concept of a thing called a Volk, uh, which is cognate to our word folk. And it didn't necessarily mean this, but the meaning of Volk came to be a people that sort of spiritually united, uh, not just by their common culture, not just by their common land, but by their common descent as well. This people that's in a sort of mystical harmony with its heritage and its land. So, Ben, what is wrong with metagenetics from your scientific point of view as, as you now slip into Dr. Ben mode. All right. What is wrong with metagenetics? Pretty much everything. The problem is that if you're going to do science, you have to be able to state a hypothesis very clearly. And McNallan doesn't really have the background to do that. His writings on metagenetics, both in 1980 and in a follow-up article that he did, the idea is so nebulous that you can't really test it through scientific means. He keeps saying that spirituality is encoded in the very DNA itself. 
and mentions uh, – this is kind of odd. In the initial publication of uh, the Metagenetics article, he actually mentioned the thought of Timothy Leary. Uh, now, Timothy Leary was the Harvard psychologist who took an awful lot of LSD and encouraged everybody else to do it too. He was famous for coining the slogan, turn on, tune in, drop out. Uh, very much a figure of the drug counterculture, which McNallan had denounced in earlier issues of the Runestone. But Timothy Leary had claimed that things like the occult Akashic Records and Jung's Collective Unconscious are all expressions of what Leary calls the neurogenetic circuit based on signals from the DNA-RNA dialogue. I don't actually know exactly what he's talking about right there. It sounds like he took a whole bunch of scientific words and treated them not unlike A. Rudd Mills treated the common book of prayer. Possibly. Well, there's also that 70s interest in pop parascience that we right. talked about earlier, uh, because he cites the work on ESP of uh, people like J.R. Rhine at Duke University, who was famous for finding parapsychological effects. So, so let's try this, Ben. What am I thinking right now? I'm drawing a blank. I'm thinking that this is a bunch of crap. <laughs> right. Well, Ryan has been pretty much debunked. Ryan was able to find all kinds of parapsychology effects, but they disappeared when anybody else was in the room. So he claimed that skeptics were sending out, you know, telepathic waves that made it not work anymore. So it could only work if you actually had believers there. Uh, he's been pretty well debunked. McNallan appealed to some studies of reincarnation, including one case uh, published by a man named Dr. Ian Stevenson of reincarnation within the Tlingit, mm -hmm. uh, suggesting that if you're reincarnated, it's going to be within your own clan or, or tribe. You can't just, you know, be Cleopatra and then come back as Irma Furbish, a housewife in Sioux City, Iowa, or something like that. And, you know, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna go out here on a limb a little bit. Uh, depending on your view of the soul within the heathen community, you know, I personally believe in the multi-part soul theory. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's on a spiritual level there might be something there because I believe that you get part of your ancestral soul, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily. And then again, reincarnation isn't exactly mm -hmm. in my wheelhouse either. It's very complicated. I don't really, but you know, theologically, there's little bits and pieces of it that make sense to me as a progressive heathen who likes science. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like he takes little bits and pieces and puts them together to the most illogical conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stevenson's work has actually been pretty much debunked. I've got an article coming out in a book some point in the future that will lay all this down, I hope. He talks a lot about Jung, and folkish heathens in general tend to elevate Jung's concept of the collective unconscious as to being this sort of spiritual entity that follows everybody around. I'm rolling my eyes so hard at that that they've mm. just rolled back in my head. I'm now blind. Yeah, that's not actually what Jung meant. I'm not a Jungian and can't really critique this very well, but uh, Dr. Eric Goodwin is a heathen who is a Jungian a uh, psychiatrist uh, with a medical degree, and he knows Jung's work very well. And according to him, there's nothing mystical about the collective unconscious. It's basically just everything in the brain that you didn't learn. 
and that you're not conscious of, but is the product of good old-fashioned evolution by natural selection. But there's nothing oogity-boogity about it at all. Uh, McNallan would go on later to cite the work of a guy named Rupert Sheldrake, who has come up with this idea that there are some sort of energy fields called M-fields, or morphic resonance fields. And one of the things that they do is direct development of an organism from egg through embryo to adult, because he doesn't believe that DNA can do it. Now, working out how DNA does direct development is a hard problem, and we certainly don't have all of it worked out yet. But since 1980, there have been some amazing strides that have been made in understanding how it does that, Morphic resonance, on the other hand, is trying to explain something you don't understand by invoking something else that you don't understand, which is not really good practice. It's not really good science. If you're invoking an unnameable mystery to explain a second unnameable mystery, you haven't really done anything. But the M fields or the morphogenetic resonance supposedly can also explain how you inherit your ancestral religion. You know, you inherit this propensity to worship the gods of only your direct ancestors. So to bring a conclusion to the A free A, mm -hmm. all things seven in 1987 was the last year of the AFA's existence. Right. They uh, ran out of money. And I don't think they actually held an all thing in 87. Uh, according to the uh, Reconstructionist of Austria and the Odinist tradition, which is in the uh, journal Magical Religion and Modern Witchcraft, they did, according to this article I have by Jeff Kaplan, they mm -hmm. did, in fact, have one. However, they were, like I said, it was they were bankrupt. And I think, you know, McNallan and his wife did the bulk of the work. And there is a real and true issue of leadership exhaustion where you're working a full-time job. And then this is also a full-time mm -hmm. job for them. I think he said he was working 60 or 70 hours a week on this in addition to his job. And his wife was probably working 40. Right. She was keeping the books for an oil company. He was working at, uh, for a time, he was a prison guard. And they were both essentially working two full-time jobs, one to keep the AFA going and one to put food on the table. And McNallan was just exhausted. Now, I can I can put this here as a quote from an interview that Kaplan did with uh, McNallan in 1993. The AFA foundered for several reasons. For one thing, Maddie and I burned out. We were each putting about 60 hours a week in the cause, in addition to my full-time job and Maddie's part-time employment. Interpersonal hassles contributed as well. Um, and then from an interview with Robert Stein, he basically said that Stephen McNallan, his wife, Maddie Hunter, Kelly Lazat, and my wife and your, excuse me, Kelly Lazat, my wife and your truly made the AFA, talking about the A free A, too large of a monster for us to control. It thus broke free and devoured us. And it's absolutely probably true. At that also time, um, the Texas economy, you had a big bust in the Texas economy. So people were losing their jobs. I remember this. I was in Louisiana at the time and the bottom fell out of the oil market. Mm -hmm. And Steve McNallan lost his job at that point, trying to make enough. And, you know, they were struggling just to make enough mm -hmm. to cover themselves, let alone trying to keep something like the A-Free-A going. They did briefly in, in Breckenridge. They'd moved there in 85. 
And they did briefly manage to open a storefront, a physical office space in Breckenridge that they called the Euro-American Cultural Center. And I'm not sure how long that lasted, but uh, for the first time they had a, you know, real world presence rather than a P.O. box, but it didn't last very long. And 87, I think they just couldn't keep going any farther. In the very last issues, they were trying to put together a for-profit enterprise called Nine Rings Press, which would distribute books and I think also take over the publishing aspect of the AFA. And maybe the hope was that that would earn enough money that they wouldn't have to work quite so hard at their day jobs but it doesn't seem to have panned out. At that last all thing, they made a final attempt to divide up the leadership uh, among a group of core members of the AFA, which they, I assume this was a joke, called the Southern Heathen Leadership Conference. Now, that's a pun on the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was a civil rights organization led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I assume this was uh, humor, but they just couldn't get very far with that. The Southern Heathen Leadership Conference drifted apart, and by November, McNallan was making it known that he didn't want to be contacted, and the AFA was essentially defunct. He would end up giving the mailing list and some other resources to this new group of kindreds called the Asatru Alliance founded by Valgard Murray of the uh, Arizona Kindred, and they would continue to hold all things down to the present day. And their journal, Vortru, would expand to kind of fill the void that the runestone left behind. So that was the Ostertru Free Assembly, and it was succeeded, like I said, by the um, Ostertru Alliance and the Ring of Troth, who we'll cover in later episodes. So next episode, we're going to have our two live episodes where we're going to get some firsthand accounts of kind of this era from uh, both Melody Grundy, aka Sagadis, and the great Diana Pagson. And then we will be back after those live episodes to talk about the rebirth and the Officer True Folk Assembly, along with some really fun stuff like the Kennewick Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, if you want to support us, visit us on Patreon. It basically just pays for our editing and to keep this going. We're not making money off of it. But if you do, I post a lot of sneak peeks on there, special gifts. You have access to our exclusive Heathen History Facebook group where you can harass Ben and ask him questions. And lots more. I post all kinds of stuff on there. It's actually a lot of fun. And that's at patreon.com forward slash heathen history. You can also follow us on Twitter at heathen history or Facebook at facebook.com slash heathen history for updates. And as always, our show notes and our sources are available on our website heathenhistory.com. Our theme music is Happy Meat Viking. It's by Roller Music. And our show is edited by Hands on Keyboard. And for the Heathen History Podcast, my name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. Wassail, y'all.